0: And it is now 1.30, so we can start. Uh, This is uh, part two, if we could, there we go, of the um, presentation. I want to talk more about what I ended with, which is the process of subjecting the state to the rule of law, or subjecting power to law. And there's a great uh, historical struggle. This is something we should not take for granted. And this is something that, by the way, I learned um, uh, from personal experience as well as intellectually. Our neoconservative friends who proposed the invasion of Iraq, uh, I don't think they understood what they were doing. And in particular, they showed a very naive understanding of history. I would not call myself a conservative, but there are conservative thinkers I greatly admire and I think we should learn from, although I would not call myself a conservative. But the neoconservatives didn't know what they were conserving. They didn't have an understanding that the rule of law and constitutional government is a historical achievement. It has a history. Their views seem to have been, roughly, that the natural equilibrium state of the human race is Southern California or Oregon, <clears throat> and that all we need to do is find the, the obstacle to going to that natural equilibrium. And it was a dictator, in this case, Saddam Hussein. Get rid of Saddam Hussein, and everything will just be great. Uh, people will live like they live in Oregon. Uh, but Iraq is not Oregon. I'm not a, a determinist to things these, these people could never enjoy democracy or never enjoy freedom. I don't believe that at all. But it is not the thing that automatically happens when you get rid of a dictator. And it's very difficult to bring the rule of law through military force. And I think we've seen this on the ground in a very deep way. It unleashed horrific, horrific violence, suffering, and death. And I think this is partly because they did not think about what does it take to enjoy the rule of law. In their view, you could get a whole bunch of young Republicans and send them over and they'll run Iraq for a couple of years and then turn it over to the Iraqis and everything will be great. And the story did not turn out as they had expected. So I think history matters. It matters to help us understand things. But there's another important function of history that I want to at least touch on. It has a moral function as well. Reading Tacitus uh, many years ago, I came across a passage that really struck me, and I thought it probably was the inspiration for Lord Acton, one of the greatest historians who ever lived, great uh, liberal historian, a classical liberal, John Emmerich Edward Dahlberg Acton, first Regius Professor of Modern History at Cambridge University. Very few people have read much of his work, which is over 55 volumes of published material, But everyone, or most people, can remember one thing he's famous for. Power tends to corrupt, and absolute power corrupts absolutely. That was one of the great lessons he had learned from his enormous study of history. And he wanted us to remember all the wicked deeds and draw more lessons from this about how power corrupts the human person. Tacitus in his annals, pointed out that his purpose was not to relate at length every motion, not just a long chronicle of everything that happened, only such as were conspicuous for excellence or notorious for infamy. This I regard as history's highest functions, this is a very careful writer, history's highest function, to let no worthy action be uncommemorated, and to hold out the reprobation of posterity is a terror to evil words and deeds. And I think that's very important. We should remember the people who fought for justice, who fought for liberty, uh, not let them be forgotten. And we should also remember those who were seduced by power and who uh, brought about great destruction and suffering for their fellow human beings. Now, the question of attaining liberty is about limiting power. Those two questions cannot be separated. You need to find offsetting powers, bring power under law, or, as I would suggest, substitute government for the state, an institution to provide governance in place of a predatory institution. We might also see the question as subjecting interest in power to law. And I quoted James Harrington last night, such a powerful statement. They that make the laws and commonwealths are but men. And this is we have to keep reminding those men and women. They are just human beings. They are not gods. They do not have any special insight denied to the rest of us. They're not smarter. They're not wiser. And God knows they are not more moral than the average person. And we have to re- keep that in mind and also remind them, And seeing that, the main question seems to be how a commonwealth comes to be an empire of laws and not of men. It is a very difficult discipline to subject yourself to the law rather than exercising your arbitrary power. And it is something that politicians are not accustomed to. Remember, I talked about the historian Augustin Thierry and his great insight. He said, there is a conquest here. And he just was reading David Hume's History of England as a young man, and he said, now I get it. Behind all of this, there is a conquest. And the struggle for freedom and the rule of law is about undoing the violence involved in that and substituting for it governance. So I want to start with a couple of important stories. And you have, by the way, an outline here. Don't bother following it. It's just for you. If I mention something or a name or a passage, Uh, you don't have to scribble it down because most of what I talk about, maybe all of it is in here, including long quotes and citations and a bibliography at the back, which I've conveniently put a few things in bold because I know giving someone a list of 30 things means they will read zero. (laughs) Giving them a list list of two means they may read one, right? That's how I am also. Uh, But I want to start with one of the oldest uh, stories, uh, oldest written stories, and it's the Epic of Gilgamesh. It's a very important, interesting story, and there are many uh, translations available. There's a very good one by uh, Stephen Mitchell. It's quite poetic. He glosses over all the broken parts of the text. Uh, You can get the Oxford University edition, which is not so poetic, but it's very careful. and shows where we're missing fragments and so on. It's a remarkable story of the Prince Gilgamesh. And uh, yes, you can see this pretty well. He's powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert. And look at him. You can see what he's holding in each hand in this carving. Anyone identify what those are? They're cats. Yes, they're really big, big, big cats. I would not do that with my cats. (laughs) trust you. Uh, But these are lions. So he comes in holding a lion by the tail in each hand. So this is a propaganda poster, in effect. He's a very powerful man. But... Not unusual for holders of executive authority, Gilgamesh would not leave the young girls alone. The daughters of warriors, the brides of young men, the gods often heard their complaints. Well, to be quite direct about it, and the the story is is, uh, pretty brutally graphic, uh, as the great prince, he had a power that on the night of the wedding of a young man and a young woman, he would sleep with the bride. Everyone here is an adult, so I can be a little bit more frank. He didn't really sleep with them. He didn't say, oh, I'm so sleepy. Uh, He raped them. This is an act of violence. He raped these women. That's what a powerful man will do. And no one can touch him. He's powerful, superb, knowledgeable, and expert. And he humiliates the woman. He humiliates her husband. He humiliates their family. Well, the people complained about this, but to whom could they complain? So they prayed to the gods. And one of the gods, Ururu, hears their prayers and she makes a natural man. <clears throat> she gets some tufts of grass and some clay and fashions a man out, uh, outside of the city and of Uruk. And it says For God like Gilgamesh, an equal match was found, and Kidu goes to the city. It's a really powerful, beautiful poem. He goes to the city. There's some various adventures along the way. And he goes to the house of the father-in-law, that is to say where the bride is going to be raped. And he would not allow Gilgamesh to enter. So they fight. They have a conflict. And each one is powerful and masterful. And neither one can defeat the other. And they leave. And then the poem goes on. It's a very interesting poem. Uh, look into life at the time. They've actually become friends. Enkidu dies. Gilgamesh goes to the house of the dead. It's an image we have of, the, of their Sumerian understanding of the afterlife, which is really very, very grim, and uh, so on. Uh, but the important thing is it's the first story of checks and balances. If you're subject to power by someone, you need another power to balance it, to check it. And there's a little kind of ironic twist at the end of the story. After he's left and gone through any, many um, adventures, Gilgamesh comes back to Uruk, and the walls of the city have grown higher in the absence of the king, which might be a suggestion, we didn't really need you. It's not clear. Uh, that would be an interpolation into the text. but. When he comes back, the city has flourished in his absence. But as far as I know, it's the first story of checks and balances uh, in any human language. In the same region, there's a story of Urukagina of Lagash. This was discovered by French archaeologists who uh, discovered a number of different writings in the city of Lagash, which is the village of Telo in contemporary uh, Iraq. And there is a story about a great leader who established the freedom of the citizens of Lagash. He freed the markets, eliminated the taxes, respected the property of all rich and poor alike, established freedom of trade, <clears throat> eliminated the monopolies of the favored families, and so on. And from this uh, writing, we have the first written expression of liberty in any human language, emoji. Uh It's a very interesting word. And uh, it is uh, one that, and I, this is a personal bit of advice I would offer to anyone. Uh, I thought, before I got this tattooed, which I have on this arm here, tattooed so, here, uh, I would go to real experts and make sure it means what I think it means, uh, and not kick me or something. Or like you see, sometimes American kids will have some Japanese word and it's backwards. It's very embarrassing. So I wanted to make sure it was right. So I went to the Department of Sumerology at the Útveszlorant Tudományegyetem in Budapest, and checked with them. They said yes, it means freedom. There's no doubt, no question, what you understand by personal freedom, to be a free person rather than a bondsman or a slave. And it comes from return to the mother. It's a compound noun. It's a bit of a puzzle. We don't know quite why. The best theory, but it's just a hypothesis, is because it was a matriarchal society and family name and descent was traced through the mother's side. These are unusual today. Most societies today are patriarchal. <coughs> the family is, to, is traced through the father's side. So if your father had an Irish name, you have an Irish name, even if your mom was from Kenya or uh, Italy or Japan or someplace else. And so if you had been made a slave and you became free, you returned to your family. That would be to return to the mother. But they said, it's speculative, we're we're not sure. But in the context, it means to be a free person. And so this idea of freedom was very clearly articulated at a fairly early date, although these texts were later lost. We can skip ahead. I'm going to skip lightly over the surface and deal with some high points, if you will, uh, to the book of Samuel, in which there is a debate, if you will, over having a king. As the people go to Samuel and they say, your sons do not walk in your ways. He was a judge. He was not a king. Your sons have become corrupted. Give us a king like the other nations. And Samuel prays and says, what should I do? God says, they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me. And it's an interesting book because it seems to be possibly a fusion of pro- and anti-royalist texts. And biblical scholars have uh, pored over this for many years to understand, but you can see the two sides in the debate being argued. But there's a long passage there. This will be the manner of the king that will reign over you. And it goes on and on and on. He will take your sons and appoint them for himself, for his chariots to be his horsemen. Some shall run before his chariots. Take your daughters to be perfumers and bakers and maids and cooks and White House interns, just endless list of all of these uh, actions that the king will take. He will take a tenth of your grain and a tenth of your flocks, and you will be his slaves, 10%. You will be his slaves, but the Lord God will not hear you on that day because of the king that you have made. This is a great warning of the dangers of kings. And it is one that is repeated over and over for thousands of years, including in the book of Thomas Paine that helped to launch the American War for Independence, uh, cites this. It says, this is what it is to be ruled by a king. So this text is very powerful warning about being ruled by kings and subject to their power. Think about the ideas of freedom. We tend to think also of Greece, and Greek civilization, and Athens in particular. About 500 BC, they rise to a very high level of personal wealth and freedom. They, they go to the seas. They're traders and merchants. And really quite a remarkable civilization in the Mediterranean. They develop actuarial science. Uh, for business purposes, calculations, as well as geometry and and, uh, astronomy and mathematics and poetry and so many other uh, great contributions to human culture. They're invaded twice by the Persians. And the great Persian empire is expanding. They do manage to conquer the Greek cities of Ionia, what is today uh, roughly Turkey, and prepare uh, to invade uh, the mainland of Greece. And they're defeated uh, twice by coalitions of Greek city states, the second time primarily by Athens, and uh, repulse them. They repulse the Persians. Uh, Great, enormous cost to the Persian uh, armies, substantial cost also to the Greeks. Remember the battles of Marathon and Thermopylae. This leads to a great discussion in Greece about what were we fighting for? And so when we think philosopher, we think someone sitting in an office in a university department, but think more widely. Anyone who's thinking systematically, including poets and playwrights and so on, they begin this enormous conversation about what is justice and what is freedom. And you have the works of Sophocles, and Euripides, and others, and the issue of freedom is very important in that to discuss what does it mean to be free? What were we fighting for? Because do recall that the Persians offered fairly reasonable terms as these things go. If the Persians came in and said, we want to incorporate you, uh, and you submitted to them, they would put a Persian garrison in your city, there'd be a governor, you'd pay some taxes. Things would more or less be about the same as before. Would not be that terrible. If you fight us, we will annihilate you. We will annihilate you. We will tear down your city. We will tear down the temples of your gods and cast them into the dirt. We will rape. We will enslave. We will castrate your boys to become eunuchs in the uh, royal palace. The men will be hauled off as slaves. You will be worked to death in the silver mines. Your city will be annihilated. And yet they fought. They fought for their independence and freedom, and this led to a great discussion. What what is it that we were fighting for? Later in the war between Sparta and Athens, uh, two great cities and their different leagues uh, fighting against each other, and Thucydides, in his history of the Peloponnesian War, has a passage, the funeral oration of Pericles. Pericles is the Athenian politician or demagogue, if you will. He leads the masses, the demos, and he gives this beautiful funeral speech over the bones of the fallen Athenian soldiers, and it's very much about freedom. He says, unlike our enemy, the Spartans, we are not afraid of having public discussions of things. We are not afraid to talk about what actions we should take and then deliberate and then go out and do them. Our city is open to the world. We do not have periodic deportations. Many foreigners come here. This is something we should remember, I think, today. It was an open, free city, unlike Sparta, which was not. And as he said, each one of our citizens is able to show himself the rightful lord and owner of his own person. Now, one should not overly romanticize this. The population there was mainly not citizens and mainly not free large numbers of slaves who labored for those who were able to enjoy leisure. But many of those who were free also worked as well. They were tradespeople, and mechanics, as we would call them today, uh, farmers, <clears throat> business people, and so on. But by the standards of the day, a high degree of personal freedom, and I think also a very significant uh, measure of degree of freedom, was the high regard and status of women. Women did not have the vote, voting rights of citizens, but there were many highly respected women in the society. They had salons. There were women philosophers and thinkers. Uh, you did not find this in most of the other uh, states or regimes at that time in the world. The teacher of Socrates, Diotima, was a one, for example. And so that there were uh, very important cultural and intellectual figures uh, in Athens who were female. So they were considered much better, uh, treated much better, if you will. Now, most philosophers historically have sided with the Spartans, Rousseau very famously, but also, frankly, Plato uh, and others, and consider them better because they had discipline, they had unity of purpose. As a politician recently said, unity is everything. Uh, That's what they had. Whereas the Athenians were commercial. They were business people. They were higgling and haggling in the marketplace and arguing all the time, arguing, arguing, arguing. They had no unified purpose. What good were they? So people talked about the virtue of the Spartans. Andrew Colson, who was a very dear colleague here at Cato who died not too long ago. He was a director of educational policy studies. He was a very, very sweet, nice person. And he wrote a book uh, on the history of education. And he points out, it's the history of private education in effect. Interestingly enough, of course, Athens did not have a state educational system. The educational system was all private there. There were all these different private schools you would send your children to, continuing education, adult education of all sorts. All of it was private, in contrast to Sparta, where things were run by the state. They said, well, and of course it had a consequence. Um, what did we get? Think about it from the two sides, really. From Athens, you get mathematics, astronomy, geometry, music, architecture, political science, philosophy, tragedy, comedy, stuff like that. And from Sparta, what do you get? We get the names of a lot of American high school football teams. <laughs> The fighting Spartans—that's uh, about it, in terms of their contribution to human culture—was violence and war. So, if you want to look to the place that really contributed to human culture, it was the place that was known for business, argument, disputation. They did not have that unity that so many people prize so highly. We can skip ahead further to another important period, and then I'll get into the more the modern era the rise of the Roman Republic. The Roman Republic is very interesting. It's a small little town that comes to dominate much of the world. And in 510 to 59 uh, BC, they overthrew their monarchy. And they establish a republic, a a public thing, and create a very complex kind of what comes to be called a constitution. I have just a few important dates there. there. They diminished hereditary privilege, eliminated debt slavery, uh, and so on. And they create a constitution that's extremely complex. So if you know a little bit about the Roman law, there are all these different offices, privileges, and powers that check each other. There are the tribunes, the consuls, the aediles, all censors, all these different offices, and of course, the Roman Senate And then the election procedures, elections in two different mechanisms, which may sound a little familiar from the United States, election for the House of Representatives and election for the Senate. We vote differently with different weights for our votes. One way to understand the Roman Constitution is it's a very complex mechanism to make it difficult for anyone to seize power, to be a king again. And it worked for a very, very long time. So people who might poo-poo it should remember it did last about 500 years. And our republic has not lasted that long. Nothing lasts forever. Our republic may also at some point um, collapse or fade away. Let us not hope not, because it will be a very terrible time. Uh, But it did last a very, very long time. The destruction of the republic, because of this confluence of different egos and personalities and various historical accidents, Um, we can date it fairly well, 46 uh, B.C., and I mentioned Cato the Younger, when he committed suicide, and the story of it is quite moving. Uh, He uh, did not want to be pardoned by Caesar and to have to submit to him because he knew he would become, in effect, a tool of Caesar's power. And by committing suicide, he died a free person. So He kills himself after they had lost the Battle of Thapsus. It's a quite powerful story. Made sure everyone else got away, all the other families. Everyone is loaded on the boat. They're all saying, "Uh, Cato, we're leaving now. And he said, OK, fine. More people got them on the boats and then retired to take his own life, having saved everyone else. Uh, that, in effect, sim, sim, uh, was a symbol that the Republic was finished and we were now subject to a, an emperor, an imperator. And the word prince, by the way, Octavian, who comes into this power after Caesar is assassinated and more internal struggles with Mark Antony, uh, he calls himself the prince, which just means first citizen. So they kept the outward form of the Republic, but it was hollow. It was now an empire. And the emperor had all of the power. Now, they create a new Rome later. Uh, The Roman Empire in the west collapses. And in the year 330, the emperor Constantine founds Constantinopolis, the city of Constantine, today Istanbul. The Roman legions withdraw from the west, uh, the withdrawal from Britain, 409 to 410. And it's a complex question what led to the collapse of the Roman Empire. There are many different theories about that. Uh, But one thing was, I think the barbarian invasions was not not it, per se. That's a common story. They were just overrun by barbarians. Most of those barbarians were actually refugees uh, fleeing from someone worse and more scary outside and trying to get into the empire where it was safe. They had many internal problems, a degradation of the currency and overtaxation and so on, that economic historians are also focusing more attention on. But it's a complicated question what leads to this collapse? The last Roman emperor in Rome is turfed out in 476 Flavius Mamilius Romulus Augustulus Triumphus, very unfortunate name. Uh, And he was uh, booted out by one of his German generals. They would hire mercenary soldiers, and one of the generals uh, kicked them out and said, well, I'm the one who has all the power, much like when the uh, Germans came into uh, Roman Britain after the legions withdrew, and the Romanized Latin-speaking population and uh, Celtic population of Britain had to defend themselves from the Picts and the Celts and the ones coming over from the north, so they hired these German mercenaries, and they said... Well, we don't fight, don't have any weapons. Maybe you could defend us. And they landed, and they said, sure, that sounds good. And we have these cousins. They could come and help, too. And of course, within a short period of time, they're overrun by the mercenaries that they had hired and all of their cousins uh, who come in. And those uh, other populations are pushed to the margins, Wales and uh, uh, to the south. Uh, as the Roman legions have withdrawn, a new system begins to grow up on the ruins, and that is feudalism. And feudalism was primarily a system of defense. It was also very different from how it is typically portrayed. It was a contractual relationship. It created new kinds of property, but what it meant, and here you have an image of a knight receiving his knighthood, someone who was a powerful warlord, powerful person, had a lot of land, would say, you. If you will fight for me, I will give you some land. But you must bring to me your person with weapons and a horse when I call on you. Maybe if it's a big piece of land, you must bring five or 10. I will come to your defense if you're attacked. So this is a decentralized defensive system. Because the Vikings are coming in from the north, the Norsemen, the Avars and the Majars from the east, and the so-called Saracens from the south. And they'll come in and raid and plunder, get back on their ships, the south and the north, and sail off. What can you do? So you need you can't have big legions and armies marching all around to defend. So this decentralizes the uh, political system, and you end up with these grants of feudal tenure. This is a famous one. It's memorable because it's so unusual. Uh, Roland was given a grant of tenure by sergeantry by Henry II in England, and it was an exchange not for military service, but uh, something else, which is said that every year on the birth of our Lord, just on Christmas Day, uh, he will come before the king and he will leap into the air, whistle, and break wind, which is considered... Better than the internet, they didn't have a lot of entertainment at the time, so uh, this was to entertain the royal court, and he had a unique talent. (laughs) Most commonly, however, this was in exchange for military service. He would bring soldiers or horses uh, to the defense of the king, the feudal levy, as it was called. And one of the consequences of this is this decentralization. Now, these are all held what we call tenurial property. That's still the theory of property in Great Britain. You hold it of the king or queen. But over time, it becomes hereditary, and we can see for economic reasons why. You hold this land, but when you die, it reverts to your lord, or ultimately to the king. What do you do? You exploit it, get as much value as you can out of it before you die because you cannot give it to your heirs. But if you can pass it on to your heirs, you want them to have more, you build up the value. And so there's a struggle, and these eventually become hereditary. And you can see the economic reasoning why that would take place. At about the same time, new forms of governance are coming about. There's the Abbey of Cluny. It's extremely important, founded in 910 as a Benedictine order. And they created a new form of organization. No feudal land holdings, no form of discipline and governance. And very, very important, they establish corporate bylaws. So these abbeys that then spread throughout Europe because of the Cluniac reform create rules of governance for people who are not related to each other. Because remember, they're supposed to take a vow of celibacy to enter the order. How do they decide who's going to cut the grass? How did they decide what's going to be done with the Treasury? Well, they would elect an abbot. They had elections. They had procedures. They had rules to govern themselves. And this is one of the most important sources of contemporary governance. Corporate bylaws and so on are rooted in this, because these are groups of people who are not related by family, and they need to cooperate. So they accept rules of governance. This spreads throughout Europe. They're very disciplined. They create huge amounts of value and begin to push back the wilderness and spread uh, not only their message and books, I should add, very, very important element to this, because they're copying uh, books. uh, And they produce a lot of wine and beer. And this is also important for the revival of civil society. We forget that they didn't have tap water that was drinkable. And wine and beer, the reason why most of society this time is little drunk all the time is because if you put beer and wine in your water, it kills the bugs. It's the only water you can safely drink. So that's why uh, people are brewing beer and making wine all the time. At about the same time, the church organizes what's called the Peace of God Movement. And this is also a very interesting movement to diminish violence generally. The church is becoming more prosperous. They own a huge amount of land, and fighting, it turns out, diminishes the value. Every restaurant owner knows this. You have a restaurant, you're offering some tasty food, and right outside the door, people are slashing each other to pieces and murdering each other. No customers. So we don't, we don't like that. So we want to diminish violence. Shopping malls do this also, right? Don't fight in a shopping mall. They won't beat you up or kill you, but you will be escorted very quickly out because you don't fight in a shopping mall. It's bad for business. And they get together groups of people and have public oaths. Uh, They would bring out the saint's bones of the local saint, uh, some bloody rags of some martyrs, something that had great significance for the Christian population, hold them up and say, on these bones you will swear not to engage in acts of violence. And so not only to have the sacred character, everyone does it together. And they would say, those who do not agree to this and who wish to be violent, please stand over there. We want to know who you are. And this helped people to be assured, Okay, they're not going to fight. I won't fight either. I agree to fight if you agree not to fight. Very powerful mechanism, this Peace of God movement for lowering the general levels of violence. And then one of the great movements that comes out of this is called the Gregorian Reformation. And this is one of the pivotal moments in world history, certainly European history. In 1073, a brilliant German monk named Hildebrand becomes Pope Gregory VII. He issues the dictates of the pope, very interesting document. You can read it today. It's easy to find on the Internet. Uh, it's like kind of a laundry list. It's not entirely clear what it is. Uh, But a copy comes into the hands of Henry IV. The dictates of the pope says that the Roman bishop alone is to be called universal. And remember, he's the bishop of Rome. The Roman emperor is gone, but this bishop of Rome, the Christian bishop, begins to fill the space of the Roman imperium. In fact, many of the titles that the pope brings on. Pope, il papa, means the daddy of the church. Maybe someday there'll be a mom, who knows. Uh, but the pope means father or deity of the church. But he has many, many other titles. The pontiff, for example. That comes from the Roman pagan co- college of pontiffs, priestly caste responsible for bridges. But he built the bridge between earth and heaven. so He's called the pontiff. He's also called the universal primate, which I think is a really interesting title. Uh, so he's filling this space. And this particular pope is very, very strong on what he calls the freedom of the church, because the emperors were claiming to be the heads of the church. And he said, no, you're wrong. The church is independent of the state. He issues the dictates. They have a great conflict. And you would think pope, emperor, Right? emperor has armies, foot soldiers, castles, knights on horseback, pope, nuns, Benedictine monks, priests. Who wins? Well, in 1077, the emperor came and asked the forgiveness of the pope to be readmitted into the communion of the church. Uh, so he had his spiritual power. But the part that's not mentioned frequently by people who overly spiritualize this is there was a Norman army nearby having a cookout. So They just happened to be in the neighborhood camping and they were there really to support the pope. And do you recall in 1066, his predecessor as pope had supported the Norman claim to England. So there's more complexity to the story than sometimes it's portrayed. Uh, but he establishes the church as independent somehow. Now, that means that power isn't just one thing. Remember that people like to talk about power, government drives power. In the liberal tradition, it's always powers. There are powers. This means that there's a big crack in power. Some powers are held by one party, and some by another. And it means that if one is oppressing you, you can go to the other. And if that one is oppressing you, go back to the first. There's some competition. There's some space for little people like us, and frankly, most of us are the descendants of peasants or simple people. Right? There might be a couple of you descended from Charlemagne. In fact, probably a lot. We got around. Uh, we notice the huge number of people in Central Asia who have a common male ancestor lived at the same time as Genghis Khan, uh, for example. Uh, but most of us are the descendants of peasants. And people like that could get their freedom by playing off one jurisdiction against another. Another important thing that came out of this Murray movement is the communal movement and the growth of the medieval communes. These are exceptionally important. And here, uh, Cologne, uh, it's a walled city. You can go there and visit the archaeological museum. It's a very, very interesting uh, place, uh, where they have a uh, uh, Roman-German historical museum. You can see the excavations of how the city was constructed. It was a Roman city, uh, initially, and uh, was abandoned, largely, by the Romans. They still had an archbishop and a lot of cows, but not many people. Then merchants came to the portus, the gate, the the port of the city, and set up tables and would buy and sell stuff. More merchants means more customers, more customers, more merchants. Eventually they built a wooden palisade around themselves to protect against robbers and bandits. And then eventually the walls of the city. In 1396 they rebel against the archbishop, and write what's called the Febunbrief, which is a document of uh, mm, confederation of the merchants of Cologne and expel the archbishop. And to this day, the archbishop of Cologne may not live in Cologne. He lives outside and he commutes in. There's an office there. It's been that way since 1396. Uh, and they have a principle, city air makes you free after one year and one day. So if you run away, you're a serf someplace, and you run away, you get into the city. You spend a year and a day there. You go from one Starbucks to the next all throughout the city. You become a free person, and the city will defend you. And there are many documented cases of this, of lords coming up and saying, oh, give me that man. And the citizens come forward and say, this is another one of our citizens. He has been here a year and a day. If you go to the city of Tallinn, which was also a medieval commune and a Hanseatic city uh, in Estonia, there are two walls. It's quite interesting to see the the wall of the city and the wall of the aristocratic compound outside. The wall of the city was to protect them from the aristocrats. And there was an occasion when aristocrats had come in and kidnapped someone to take him off to service. And the citizens captured those aristocrats tried them, and executed them inside the city walls. They said, you may not do that. So this was a place their personal freedom was to be guaranteed. Now, some of you may recognize Stadtluft macht frei. There's another grotesque and horrifying perversion of that that the National Socialists use. Arbeit macht frei. This is what they put over the Auschwitz slave labor camp. And they understood. They were masters of aesthetic humiliation and aesthetic glorification. This is one of the things that the Nazis had, without any question, the best uniforms and so on of all the totalitarian powers. But they had a fine sense of aesthetics, how to glorify their leader and their insane, crazy uh, cult, but how to humiliate people. People knew the phrase, city air makes you free, and they were mocking them as they marched into the slave labor camp. And of course, over what did they have to march? The broken headstones of the vandalized Jewish cemeteries, that they had to walk over them. So they didn't miss a beat. Every opportunity to humiliate uh, their victims. And, and mocking this phrase was one of them. Now, these municipal laws and constitutions spread all throughout Europe. And very important were the Magdeburg laws. Magdeburg was a city on the Elba. And their laws were so very good, other people copied them. They would send scribes. The town councils would say, go and make a copy, because they didn't have fax machines then or PDFs, go make a copy of the Magdeburg laws and bring them back. So the Magdeburg cities spread all across Central Europe. And the local court of Magdeburg became The Supreme Court, the Court of Appeal, for hundreds of the Magdeburg cities, when they'd have a legal dispute and the two cities would have a conflict, they're both governed by Magdeburg law, they would refer it to the court in Magdeburg to resolve it. Law comes to spread and to replace arbitrary predatory power. The merchant law is another interesting example of this. And it's an example, again, to kind of break our our indoctrination into statism, that law comes from the state. Mercantile law does not come from the state. It comes from merchants. The law merchant was produced by business people, and it is today the foundation of all international mercantile law. If a Korean shipping company is doing business with an a Argentinian company, they're governed by these laws. They're not governed by something passed by the Argentinian parliament or the Korean uh, parliament. It is the foundation of international business law. <clears throat> and they develop laws that are based on commerce. That are the, the judges typically were business people. They understood how business is done. We have a little echo of this in the US. Uh, the American Law uh, Institute formulates a uniform commercial code. It's passed by state legislatures, but it isn't written by legislatures. They don't know anything about law. What would a legislator know about law? It's written by lawyers who study business contracts. What happened in these contractual relations since the last uh, restatement? And they codify that. And then the legislatures just pass something that's written by legal experts, and the legal experts are following what business people do. So it is that the law is a codification of the practice of the business community. Bruno Leone, a great Italian classical liberal jurist, put it very neatly, individuals make the law insofar as they make successful claims. You take a claim to court, if you are successful, you have made law in the process. And it sets a precedent that another court may copy, another court, another court, and so on. These do not come from politicians. They come from In this case, business people. Now, out out of all of this, you get the growth of civil society and coming out of the cities of Europe. So we have feudal society and civil society. And that's a very interesting term because it comes from Latin civitas, which means the, the legal organization of the city, not the place. English is impoverished in this regard. When I say city, do I mean the city of New York? Do I mean the city government, and the associations, and legal relations, or do I mean the place? It's not clear. I have to specify. I visited the city, and I walked around the city, or the city did something. In Latin, they have clear terms, civitas and urb, and in Greek, it's polis and uh, astu. Astu is the place. But we get from Latin, civil, civitas, civil. And it's lovely. In English, it means a kind of behavior, English mothers, if you go to England, you'll hear them as they are shepherding their small children, and the children misbehave, they say, be civil. Be civil. It means respect other people. Behave like a shopkeeper does. When when you come into the shop, they don't yell at you or curse at you, at least the successful ones don't. Those who do are out of business pretty quickly. They're civil to you. They're polite. How may I help you? When I lived in Vienna years ago and I worked with Jewish refugees from the Soviet Union, I remember uh, uh, when we did business, because I did a lot of smuggling into the Soviet Union, I needed cash and I'd give them cash in Western countries and their cousins would give me rubles. And I remember one father, he said, it was so difficult. He said, it's very hard here. We go into the store. And first of all, we were in the poorest neighborhood of Vienna. He said, who can buy such things? Who can pay for this? They explained, this is the poorest part of town. I said, unimaginable. But he said, we don't know what to do. When we go in, people come and they say, how can we help you? We don't know, so we leave. <laughs> Never had happened in their lives in the Soviet Union. where the, You didn't get treated like that in a store. I once bought in the Soviet Union a hat, I'll digress for a moment, uh, for... The son of the president of the Catois at the time, Jeffrey Crane, was getting married this weekend. This, was married this weekend. And, uh, but when he was a boy, and I wanted to buy a uh, proper Russian hat, so I went to a Berioska shop, hard currency shop, and I said, so, so what, is, what is this made from? And the woman was smoking, and she said, it's made from a dead baby seal. <laughs> I said, oh, OK. Uh, so that was a difference in customer service. So <laughs> civil behavior is about how you're treated by people who want your custom, as the English say. It's a lovely English expression. Thank you for your custom, when you, you're a customer. Uh, but then we have, from the German side, Burg. We get Hamburg, Pittsburgh, Hillsboro. <laughs> Many words in English have this root, and bourgeois. And that's because French people have a genetic defect, and they cannot pronounce German words, Bürgerlich. and they say bourgeois. And that comes into English with a negative connotation, unfortunately, as low class and so on. And of course, the House of Burgesses, the, old, the first representative assembly in the American colonies. So you see then a movement from status to contract The feudal society had become a society of heredity and inherited privilege over time, meant you were born a lord, an aristocrat, a serf, whatever. That's who you're going to be all your life, to one in which you make your relationships on the basis of contract or agreement. And that changes things quite dramatically. Norbert Elias, a writer I really like very much, I wish I had met him. He just looks like an interesting person. Uh, He escaped from the Nazis and taught uh, in England um, during the war years and after, and a great sociologist. And he talks about the growth of the civilizing process, self-control, not being subservient to others, but controlling yourself. And he connected that to the division of labor. The interdependence of people increases with the increasing division of labor. Everyone becomes increasingly dependent on everyone else, even those of high social rank, on those people who are socially inferior and weaker. And the latter become the equals of the former. That's very, very important. It levels out the society. It's a society in which we're all dependent on each other. This fantasy that people criticize libertarians, say, oh, you want to be independent and not dependent on anyone. Say, no, no, I don't want that. I don't want to make my own clothes. I don't want to grow my own food. I do not want to make my own eyeglasses. Life would be terrible. I would die very quickly. I want to be dependent on other people, but I want to make my decisions about my life myself. But I can still be dependent on other people, and other people depend on me at the same time. But to do that, we have to acquire greater degrees of self-control. That's the key. It's actually the theme of my new book, which will be coming out shortly. And then another important element, the growth of written charters of privileges and immunities. We think of Magna Carta, uh, Article 39, no free man shall be taken in prison disased, which means having your stuff taken outlawed, banished. Nor will we proceed against him or prosecute him except by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land. So in 1215, the bishops and barons took uh, King John. They said, you will sign this and restrain yourself. And he did. And then this is restated a number of times, the great charter Uh, Repassed, comes through many different versions. But this one should be familiar to Americans. The lawful judgment of his peers, trial by jury, comes from this. And the law of the land, due process of law, are rooted. And the American colonists and founders pointed to this. They said, it is our right under Magna Carta. But it's not unique to England. The English are sometimes very proud of Magna Carta. And I've heard people say, only in England. Well, this is not true. I was once at a lecture with an audience of Bulgarians and Greeks and Norwegians and Poles and so on. And an English professor said, other languages have no word for liberty. It's very embarrassing. And I I had to get up and say, this is one of the silliest things I've ever heard in my life. Every language has a word for liberty. Uh, It's absurd. And Magna Carta was not uniquely English. English should be very proud of Magna Carta as part of their heritage. But it was a part of Europe more generally. It's happening all over Europe, charters that limited the powers of rulers. England was unusual in that it persisted there, and people remembered it, whereas in other places they were discarded by absolutist monarchs. That is unique about England. But having Magna Carta initially was not. Now, a couple of quick digressions. I need to run through these uh, unfairly and quickly about China. China has also a great tradition of liberty and what we could call proto-libertarian thought, and then later the 19th and 20th centuries uh, libertarian thinkers as well. Uh, Lao Tzu, uh, most notably articulates ideas that are re-articulated without any apparent knowledge that we know of by Adam Smith. Uh, the idea of wu-wei, of active inactivity, It's, my Chinese friends say, laissez-faire is really the correct translation for that. Doesn't mean you don't do anything. It means that the ruler would set the rules and step back. Let the order emerge. Or as Lao Tzu put it, that governing a great country is like frying a small fish. A little puzzling. But what he meant was, don't poke at it all the time. If you're constantly messing with it, it won't turn out. Let it cook. Do not interfere. Set the temperature right. Let it happen. That idea of Wu Wei was a libertarian vision, if you will. There's a very fine short book by a friend of mine and the K-2 Institute's named Lu Ju Ning, which you could find online, L-I-U, and then J-U-N-N-I-N-G, a dialogue between Confucius and Lao Tzu in heaven. And it's about liberty and libertarianism. Uh, A friend of mine translated it into English. Uh, And he tells me, as others do, it's a shame you can't read the Chinese, because to show the artistry, he took the text from the classical writings and put them in a dialogue with each other. So Chinese people can see this, and and I cannot. So I only read it in the translation. But it's a very powerful Chinese story about liberty. Uh, Under the Song dynasties, especially the southern Song dynasties, China becomes an astonishingly brilliant and flourishing civilization. Art, commerce, astronomy, mathematics, medicine, they invent the motel. Uh, People were traveling all over and there were motel chains that guaranteed the quality of service that you would get, sort of best Eastern motels. Uh, And you would always know that they would have uh, what you wanted there. Uh, They invented uh, all kinds of modern banking instruments, really quite an amazing civilization. Uh, Trade expanded uh, throughout China. Uh, This was very important to them. They had many foreigners coming to Chinese ports. There were colonies of Arabs and Persians and Jews uh, who lived there and did business there. They developed an advanced commercial civilization, Uh, Hangzhou, which is a very beautiful city uh, and well worth visiting today. It's quite gorgeous. Uh, But their slogan is about trade. About uh, globalization, vegetables from the east, water from the west, wood from the south, and rice from the north. Uh, however, there's a principle. This one's worth writing down because I didn't put it in the notes here. Uh, never be conquered by nomads. You should remember that. And they're conquered by the Mongols. And this brings about the Yuan dynasty. And then later, the Ming reaction. And the Ming draw a lesson, uh, which is China's problems was we were too open to foreigners. I think it was the wrong lesson to draw. And a long period of China looking inward, and the great treasure fleets were burned. Uh, Chinese ships had gone all the way to Zanzibar. When the Portuguese later come around and show up, the people in Zanzibar said, you call that a ship? That little thing is a ship? We've seen ships, and the Chinese has visited. These were vast, huge ships. This is, this is a boat. Uh, but all those ships were burned, and they turned inward. The villages on the coast were burned, and they forced villages to move hundreds of kilometers inland so they would not trade with Japan, for example. And this led to a serious decline, I think, in Chinese civilization, from which they have been recovering. And it's a wonderful thing to see China, again, becoming part of world trade and commerce, science, and art, and so on. And then Islam, another great civilization. Uh, Tremendous rise of trade, science, uh, codes of law. It's a great shame that the word Sharia has been so degraded, people think it just means beheading people or something. It's a legal code. There are many different schools of Islamic law, schools of jurisprudence, some of which are very tolerant and open-minded. Unfortunately, they were not the ones that had oil under them, and that has changed the course of history and the perception of Islam as a consequence. The Wahhabis are the ones who got all that oil. So one way, as one of my Muslim libertarian friends put it, he says, imagine you took one of the most um, intolerant, uh, primitive, and backward, self-identified Christian cults in the world, and under their church you put... $20 $20 trillion worth of something everyone wants, and they can pay for missionaries to transform the Christian world. How would people see Christianity after 70 years? That's one way to think of what happened to uh, Islam. Uh, but a great uh, civilization, great figures such as uh, Ibn Rushd uh, of Averroes, as he was known, commentator on Aristotle. Uh, but several features lead to a decline. Uh, one was... Al-Ghazali's debate with Ibn Rushd, how the incoherence of the philosophers, it's an attack on philosophy. Uh, Ibn Rushd wrote a great response, the incoherence of the incoherent, a very clever and brilliant defense of philosophy. Philosophy doesn't mean just, again, that course you took in college, it means science. It means figuring out how the world works. It means thinking about things and learning. He loses the debate, and his perspective becomes a minority and then very importantly, tell 58, the sack of Baghdad and the destruction of the House of Wisdom, the greatest university in the world. At the time, they said the rivers ran green because all the books were thrown by the Mongols into the river. What, what's the point of these things? And the green ink dissolved. So who knows what was lost in those great libraries. Uh, <clears throat> the great Khan of Khans, uh, this is something too important to remember. They invaded Europe. They were poised to conquer Europe. And on December 11, 1241, Ogadai Khan was poisoned. And the Mongols returned all the great khans to Karakorum, which is in contemporary China, capital of the Mongol Empire, to elect a new Khan. They never came back to Europe. And the Europeans were saved from the devastation of the Mongol conquest. Uh, Instead, they left a profound impact on Russia, China, the Middle East, and India. Let's look at Russia very briefly. The Mongol conquest led to a highly predatory state because they left the Golden Horde there and they used these local Kievan Rus princes, these Viking princes or their descendants, as tax collectors. Said, if you don't bring the tax, we'll wipe everyone out. A local tax collector said, here's the deal give us all the money, or they wipe everyone out. People said, OK. The consequence is no principle of reciprocity or accountability develops in that context, and no independent cities, and no independent church. Church is subordinate to the emperor. And as Richard Pipes put it, he said, the amazing thing in studying medieval Russian history, there's no evidence of legal decisions and no courts. Look at Western European history full of court cases and court records. Some cases, that's mostly what we have. Now, there was an exception, though, which is worth mentioning briefly, Novgorod. Uh, Novgorod was established in the ninth century. Uh, Yaroslav the Wise established a kind of Magna Carta there and signed it. Citizens had rights. In 1136, they fired their prince. And the prince became an elected, hired official who was forbidden to own property in Novgorod. He was an employee who was not their ruler, their owner. Uh, They had what was called the Vietje system, uh, which is a consultative assembly. The English had a folk moot, the Norse thing. Swiss have the Landesgemeinde. People come together and discuss and debate these things. It was not just the king giving you an order. Unfortunately, however, the Tsars of Muscovy, uh, they take the title of Tsar after the destruction of uh, Constantinople by the Turks. Before that, Tsar always meant the emperor in Constantinopolis. The emperor is dead. So they said, we are the new Tsars. That comes from Caesar, by the way, like Kaiser in German, the same. Uh, And the city was destroyed. First, uh, their bells were taken away. Bells were symbols of liberty. Think about Philadelphia. What is in Philadelphia? The Liberty Bell. People associated bells with freedom because bells were the internet, radio, television, newspaper of the day. They didn't just go ding ding. When they had bell ringers who were trained to say the city is under attack, there's a meeting of the courts, city council is meeting, it's a festival. What time it is, all those different things people knew, and you could hear the bell. The emperor melted the bells, took away their independence. And then finally in 1570, Ivan IV, Ivan the Terrible, uh, massacred the entire population, killed everyone. Novgorod was later rebuilt, but it wasn't Novgorod. He hated the Novgorodians. They were independent. They were a Hanseatic city, the, the, the League of German Mer- Merchant Cities, free, independent, and self-governing. That is the l- root of the libertarian idea in Russian culture, but it was wiped out. Going back to Western Europe, a great moment was the Dutch Revolt. Those old parliaments and so on, people said, well, those are so old fashioned. We'll do something new. Absolutism, it was, it was called. And when Philip II received the Netherlands as a gift from his father, Charles V, it's a fairly nice gift. Uh, today, if you graduate college, you get a trip to Europe or Canada or something. But, but then it was the Netherlands. Uh, and uh, Philip II says, I'm going to modernize you. You don't need these little little talking houses, little parliaments chatting away. What's, what's that about? All these legal codes and customary law. We're going to modernize you. We're going to impose new taxes on you, and of course, a resident inquisitor to make sure you're all praying the right way. They say, what? I said, yeah, so you get a resident inquisitor. I said, was that the Spanish inquisition? I said, well, I am the King of Spain, so yes, it's the Spanish inquisition. They didn't like that. At the time, they are all quite Orthodox Catholics, but as the merchants of Antwerp said at that time, part of the Netherlands, (laughs) your most wonderfulness. Please do not do this. So many heretics come here to trade. We will be ruined. Because they learned the first thing you learn at McDonald's when you get a job there. Do not kill your customers. It's very important. (laughs) Contrary to what all Hollywood movies show, business people are always conspiring to poison their customers and so on. If you kill your customers, you lose the second sale. That's very important. And they knew that. So they resist, and they succeeded in defeating the uh, Spanish Empire, and asserting their independence. In England, something similar is happening. Uh, James VI of Scotland becomes James I of England, King James VI and I, and says, you English with your goofy little parliament and your city of London, get real. You are going to have a modern government, absolute power. And the English don't like that very much. One of the great heroes Sir Edward Cook says the common law is supreme. We are judged by the law, not the king, and not even the parliament if they act against the law. Subsequent to that, in the English uh, Civil War, the first real libertarians emerge. And by that, I mean not proto-libertarians. These people are the real deal. They're called the levelers. Uh, Richard Overton, William Walwyn, Uh, John Lilburn and many others, and they were radicals for freedom. They wanted a written constitution. They wanted limitations on arbitrary power, freedom of trade, trial by jury, equal rights for everyone, equal rights for men and women. There were women levelers which enraged their opponents and infuriated them. They were so radical they believed, a little radical, even Irish people have rights. And they opposed the invasion of Ireland. And you can go to Burford in England today and see where levelers were executed for refusing to go with the army to invade Ireland and persecute the Irish. Uh, John Lilburn, one of the great heroes, uh, died in the arms of his wife, Elizabeth. He had been tortured and subjected to horrifying abuse. I shall leave this testimony behind me that I died for the laws and liberties of this nation. And to him, we owe more than any other single person the persistence of the right to trial by jury. Very, very important limitation on arbitrary power. John Locke uh, takes many of the Leveller texts, combines them with his own experience in the Netherlands of religious freedom, and articulates a modern classical liberal or libertarian text, the two treatises on government, which are really remarkable books and documents. Liberalism takes off in France. Turgot is a a particularly important figure who uh, Corresponds with the Americans. He was Minister of Finance. He abolished forced labor in France. I'll mention one thing very quickly. I'm not a great fan of taxation. But in the context, he said, instead of forced labor to make people build the roads, why don't we tax everyone and hire people to build the roads, rather than whipping and beating people Say so build a road? And it turns out this is better for everyone. It was an increase in freedom, because now you can decide what to do to earn the money to pay the tax. So although I'm not a fan of taxation, in some sense, moving from compulsory labor whippings and beatings to taxation and hired labor was an improvement. And he was a great fan of the American Revolution and encouraged the Americans to limit the power of government. They founded a country that was predicated on equal basic rights. You've all read this document, I hope, and it's worth reading again. Let me then uh, conclude. Uh, What was the Declaration about? As Thomas Jefferson wrote in a letter, not to find new principles, right, but to state the common sense of the subject. That was what he was doing. He was summarizing a tradition, a great tradition that he had inherited and distilling out the best of it. So that history of freedom is something that we should not forget. It's not something that happens automatically, it's an achievement. And it's one that we could lose and is always in peril. With that, I will conclude and hope you have some comments. Thank you. Just a little bit of time, if anyone, I have lots more to say, but I want to have some chance for some discussion. Okay, I've exhausted you. Hello, it's a question about the first lecture you gave. When you criticize people that tells the social contract is like hypothetical, but I've met a lot of libertarians and a lot of them criticize it because they say it is not a legitimate, legitimate uh, thing to uh, this state be created. So, what's your opinion about what they speak, like to the social contract be a legitimate thing? It's such a complicated topic. The term social contract is used in so many different ways. Uh, one of the most prominent contemporary social contract theorists is John Rawls. Rawls is a very interesting writer. Uh, I recommend reading his book, A Theory of Justice. It is also the most boring book I've ever read in my life because he wants to be so precise, he repeats himself over and over. And I read it three times from the page one to the last page, and each time I went to counseling to Make sure I didn't commit suicide. Was so dull. But, but it's important. And he has a hypothetical social contract where we think about what rules we would agree to under certain conditions. But it's not a real social contract. And he won't allow a real one because he says you're not allowed to compare the society you would choose with any other existing society or any other possibility. And so he says that the rules that we would choose are those... For a society that we are born into and from which we only leave upon death, I remember when I read that the third time, I thought, "That's weird. That doesn't sound like a liberal democratic society. It sounds like East Germany." Really, you're born into it. It's the only way you can be it, the only way to get out is to die. What if we allow people to choose other social orders? And I think, in that context, you end up with very different conclusions from the one that Rawls pulls out of it. But The notion that there are no contracts to establish rules as a historical matter is false. There are lots and lots of cases of robust social contracts, people agreeing publicly to do things. And we see this throughout Europe with the communes. People gathered together, discussed things, and then had an oath. We all agreed to do this. That sounds like a social contract to me. It's a contract that established a set of expectations Among each other, so it is a historical matter. It's a factual issue. Um, We should not limit social contract merely to this hypothetical construct that we use to to draw principles of justice. And when I joined my condo association, I agreed to be bound by the rules. I don't see any problem with that. Yes, sir. Thank you. So my question goes back to the very beginning of the history you're talking about with um, the Greeks defeating the Persians at Marathon and Thermopylae. My question was, how different would the world be if the Persians had won those battles and taken Greece? I have one minute. (laughs) Uh, (laughs) Very. Well, it's very hard to say. In all honesty, this kind of counterfactual history is interesting and entertaining. But hard to know what other things would have happened uh, in the thousands of years that came after that. So I don't know the answer to that. I do disagree with one thing, though, that is a common meme. And you may have seen that movie, The 300. It's an awful movie. I think I, I hate it, every minute of it. It's one of the most racist movies I've ever seen in my life. And I do not have an exceptionally high racism sensitivity button, but this one, was just obvious. All the Greeks are basically English people. And the Persians are all dark and bad, 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 bad people, and luxurious and creepy and so on. I was just staggered by the racism behind it. And that image that the Persians were decadent and terrible, I think is a very negative one, and we should get rid of it. The other one that comes up in is a, a Tolkien. Uh, Tolkien's a wonderful writer. But you'll notice all the bad people are dark, swarthy, or yellow. And there's a deep kind of ugly racism. And even in the movie version, it comes out. Because all the elves are Norwegians, <laughs> all of them. They're all Norwegian elves. And then all the invaders are black people and dark people. And I thought that was pretty startling. That image, I think we should erase, that somehow the East was inherently decadent and illiberal. This is not the case. But the big answer, I don't know. And I wish we had time, but we don't. We're going to start again on time. (laughs) I'm 40 seconds over. Let's go.